You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Morning. Hopefully you guys are all having a good weekend. I spent all day yesterday helping my sister-in-law pack. They were all moving to Michigan, so I was there from like 10.30 till 5. They were not ready. <laughs> my name is Ronnie. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Gospel Community Church. It's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word this morning. If you're a guest visiting, we promise not to do anything weird to you. As we said earlier, our whole aim and goal is to make Jesus a hero. We're looking to lift him up, not any individual person. We're looking to exalt Christ and what he's done in human history and the redemption of his people. So I hope that comes through in your interaction with us today, whether the hospitality team, what we've set up, and the sermon itself and the worship music we play. And we've been going through a, a sermon series entitled, as you saw on the screen, called A Gospel Blueprint. And I, I was just thinking about this when I was sitting down with my wife because she, she, I was making a joke like, uh, oh, you could always just build the church or you could build something without a blueprint and see how that goes. And I don't, I don't think anybody probably understands how bad of an idea that is better than my wife who has seen me try to put together stuff from Ikea without the manual. So it's, it's good to have a blueprint and a guide before going and building something, especially something as important as the church. And so we've been looking at the letter from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians as a guide in understanding how the gospel not just gives us the blueprint, but it's the, it's the building materials, it's the finished product, it's everything that the church is driving to communicate to the world and to one another as we grow in godliness. And sure, there are, there's many other things you could try to build something that might look like a church with other than the gospel. As a matter of fact, people do, and it leads to a great deal of confusion in the world when people examine Christianity and what it's about. And I, I know this because I've been in these conversations with people or I've seen these conversations take place. Some people are confused and think that the church is about establishing power and building power or, or building uh, wealth, um, about being really religious. You come and do these real religious rituals and you'll obtain salvation or being really good people or nice people. I think last time I was preaching, I mentioned that 
one of the things I often get when I talk to people about the Christian message, the, the response I get many times is they believe it's do good things and you get into heaven. That's a very common misconception amongst the culture. While it, it's wrong, it's a complete mischaracterization of what the Bible teaches, what Jesus is preaching, what Christianity is all about, I can have a little bit of grace in understanding why people would walk away thinking such a thing. I think the text we're examining today could be one of those instances where people could read something like that and walk away believing that in order to obtain salvation, there, there is much to be done on your part. So we can have a little bit of grace. Because, and I think the reason for that confusion is the gospel itself is so shallow that a toddler can walk out into it and understand it, but so deep that somebody who desires to explore its riches could get lost in it forever. It's multifaceted. It's like a diamond. It's not a two-dimensional object. It's about regeneration. We were dead. God raises us back up to life. He pulls us out of the depths of darkness. It's about forgiveness. God forgiving us of our sins in Christ. It's about justification in the courtroom of God. You are justified, made righteous in Christ. It's about salvation, being rescued from our situation here on earth, being rescued from the fall. It's about reconciliation, coming back into relationship with God. Even more so, it's about adoption. You're into his family now, not just a cordial relationship with God, but he also calls you his beloved son or daughter. It's about transformation, not just a a future reality, but something that actually changes who you are as a person as the gospel begins to conform you into the image of Christ. It's about a mission, a commission. Last time I was preaching, I speaked on this. God gives us purpose and a call to go out into the world. It's about restoration of the entire world. The world plunged into darkness from the fall, and there's a restoring part of the gospel. So there's a lot to be explored when it comes to the gospel, and the list goes on. Today, we're going to be exploring the transformative power of the gospel. And we're going to do that as we examine Philippians 2, 12 through 18, If you don't have a Bible, you you do not own a physical copy. There are some in the back. Dana has them at the Connect table. That is a gift from Gospel Community Church to you that you can take notes in, that you can highlight in. You can do whatever you want with that. That's our gift to you. We want you to own a physical copy of the Bible. Uh, If you can pull it up on your phone, feel free. There's lots of awesome Bible apps. I use Logos because it's a little bit more scholarly, but I also don't like the constant notifications if you like daily Bible verses, there are cool ones like that. I just not, I don't, I don't like a bunch of notifications floating my phone. So that's the one I use. So one main point today, super simple. The gospel is a blueprint for transformation. The gospel is a blueprint for transformation. That's the one main point we're examining the day that we're going to walk away with in our back pocket. It doesn't just save us for the days beyond our last here on this earth, but it, it doesn't just make us righteous in Christ, but it's also transforming us into the image of humanity that we were always destined to be. When we see earlier in the previous passage in Philippians 2, we see Jesus talks about the form in which he came, that servant that Jesus came that was a form. Not a, not a powerful king, not a powerful political leader, but he came as a servant, showing us what true humanity looked like. And now we're being conformed into that image. So we're going to look at the transformative power of that. You can follow along with me as I read Philippians 12, 2, 12 through 18. And then we'll, we'll dive in. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time for us to come together to worship you together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its encouragement. It's uh, it's constant reminders of the gospel, helping us come to know and understand you and your plan for humanity. I pray that you would use this as a moment to transform us, that the gospel would be something that would have an impact on our lives, changing the way we live, changing generations and families, uh, lineages of brokenness. We pray that you'd bring healing through the transformative power of the gospel. In our own lives and our family, I just pray that you would bring incredible healing, that the gospel would be something that we would rejoice over and celebrate as a future reality, but also a present one that has an impact on us here now, God. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your power. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing, I always do this. People might get tired of it, but I always like to provide a little bit of context because for maybe some that aren't familiar where we're at in Philippians. And it's perfect because in verse 12, it starts off with the word, therefore. And it's, this is one of the most basic things when it comes to understanding any text of scripture. If you see it, therefore, you have to ask, what is it? Therefore, all right. Some of you who've never heard that before might be a little like, what just happened? Uh, it's, this is not a cult. This is the most studied book in all of human history, and it's developed into somewhat of an art and a science. Fancy word, we call it hermeneutics, which is the art and science of interpretation, but it's just, it's a very well-studied book, and so there's a lot of rules. This is like 101. When you see the word therefore, whatever next is going to come after that precedes whatever was said before, so you have to take that into account. So in the previous passage, Paul is speaking about the exaltation of Christ by God so that all would bow and confess his lordship. Because of that, because of that exaltation of Christ, because of what he's done and the glory of what he has done in in redeeming his people, Paul launches in to an appeal to obedience. Not just obedience to to Jesus, which we should, but Paul gives a very specific uh, command here. And while you you look at this text, if you look at 12, if you guys have it up, I don't know if it's up behind me or, or if it will be, but if you look at verse 12, There's a lot of commas here, and they're incredibly helpful. In the Greek, these didn't exist. You know, it was just all a bunch of capital letters smushed together. There wasn't even any spaces. So for us, trying to read it, it'd be very difficult. Luckily, over the years, we've had people translate and give us these commas. They're incredibly helpful in helping us understand the flow of thought that Paul is giving here. We see he says, therefore, this is is pulling from what was said before. He says, my beloved, this is... In the vocative case, it's almost like if I was to say, you guys, pay attention to what I'm about to say. I'm giving direction, instruction for you. I'm cueing you in to listen to what I'm about to say. And then he says, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more. He's appealing to past faithfulness. That's great. We're going to set that aside for a second because it's it's kind of breaking up the command here that, that Paul is giving. Here we have the command. My beloved, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. This is the kind of verse that I was talking about earlier that can sometimes lead people into a misconception of Christianity and what it's about, where I can have a little bit of grace. If somebody reads something like this and they walk away thinking that you need to earn your spot in heaven by doing good works, by doing good things. Look at the law of God. How well are you obeying it? What does your spiritual disciplines look like? What's your church attendance record look like? 
These are the things that will determine whether or not you get in heaven. If people have these misconceptions, it could be a verse like this that they're using to try and justify that. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul and you're very well versed in the gospel, a passage like this could be a little perplexing, especially the Apostle Paul. If you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul, I'm going to give you a quick highlight reel, uh, ESPN highlights of the Apostle Paul on a view on works, uh, works as a means of obtaining righteousness, okay? And I'll, I'll throw out these verses. If you want to write them down, if you're a note taker, that's fine. If not, you can, you can trust me. You know, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, he says that our salvation is not specifically. He says, not a result of works. He says it's a gift, not a result of works. Romans 3, 20 and 28, he says that, we're, that we will not, no one, he says no one will be justified by works. In Galatians 2, 16, he says a person is not justified by works, not by works of the law. So he even gets more specific. The Torah, you obey that? He says that will not justify you. Titus 3.5, he says, he saved us, not because of works done by us. So if Paul here is communicating this, there's a couple problems. The preponderance of evidence of Paul's writing seems to communicate that he does not hold that view. In the verses where he's much more clear. So in one where we come to this one where it might not be so clear, we need to interpret it in light of what Paul has said previously. Because if he was to sit here and contradict himself, this would be a problem. This is, this is the authoritative word of God that is without error. If we have the Apostle Paul contradicting himself, that presents a little bit of a problem, okay? So I, I don't believe that Paul is saying that for that reason when we examine other things, but also it's the language of the verse itself. That word salvation, it, it means rescue, it means deliverance. This would be an odd choice of word here if Paul meant to communicate you need to do good works to be saved, and here's why. It's funny, my wife used to watch a show, I don't, maybe it's run out of episodes, I haven't seen you watch it in a minute, but it was called I Survived. And it was all these people that went through some of the most harrowing survival stories. It was, it was, some of them were pretty crazy. But the show is called I Survived, not I Saved Myself. We don't really use that language. Even in the most crazy circumstances, when someone gets out of it, we don't, we don't say, you know, I saved myself. We say I survived. Uh, we say I made it through, I overcame. If somebody was about to get into a marriage, and they ended up backing out of it, and they've come to find out later this, this person that they were going to get married with was just crazy, awful, ended up doing all different kinds of crazy things, like went to prison, was very hard in drug addiction, was abusing people. Would, would we say, oh, you saved yourself from an awful marriage? No, we, we usually say something like, oh, you dodged a bullet. Because that, that very word itself, save, even as you look in the New Testament, it's almost never present, or I don't think it actually ever is presented in the Active voice is something somebody's doing, but it's in the passive voice is something done to them. They're rescued, they're delivered, they're saved. So considering the word choice and Paul's other things, I think Paul is, he's communicating something different here. Well, then what does this mean? I'll try to give you a simple analogy because this is somewhat of a complicated theological concept because God, we see in other places of scripture that God is sovereign over the ends. He's sovereign over our salvation. He's the one working. He's the one doing it. He's the one bringing us in. But something that people fail to, to uh, realize is he's also sovereign over the means. And an example would be if I, son, if I told my son, Miles, hey, go clean your room, buddy. And he comes back later and he says, my room is clean. You know, I've given him, I've given him an ends, my desired end, and the means to which I want it done. Clean your room is the end. The means is, I want you to do it. I want you to pick everything up and put it away. If he comes later and he says, I clean my room, and I go, 
uh, did you clean it? And he goes, no, Eva did. Okay, the end was accomplished, but not the means to which I desired it to be accomplished, right? We don't save ourselves, as I was talking about earlier, but God does. The, the command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and the response to this command from those who have come into contact with the love of Christ, this is an example of one of the means to which we are being saved. An, an unbeliever feels no desire, no obligation to submit themselves to Christ as Lord. Some people may say he, he's savior, he, he's good, he's compassionate, he's a great teacher. But even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can call Jesus Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It, it, is, it is a thing unique to those who are followers of Christ that will uniquely declare him to be Lord, not just savior, but also Lord. And there's implications for this. Some people may profess his name, but they won't submit to him as Lord. Yes, he's a loving and gracious savior, but your reaction to that command to work out your own salvation may very well be the, the means to which God is revealing your relationship to him to the rest of the world. Your reaction, negative or positive, to the command to obey Christ may very well be the means. If you examine everything that happens and takes place on the cross, the, the, the bloody and rugged cross, a scene that many of us here would probably struggle to examine, considering how far apart we are removed from things like that, the brutality of that age. The exchange that took place where he takes on our sin, he gives us our perfection, that hiddenness we have now in Christ that we've been hidden and called a beloved son or daughter. You see all that, and the command to obey doesn't move you or stir you into action. That, that command in itself may very well be the means to which God is hardening your heart and, we, and this is, it's difficult to hear, but it's true, and we see it in other places of Scripture. Look at the Exodus story. God used the commands from Moses delivered to Pharaoh as a means of hardening Pharaoh's heart. It was the command to let God's people go, which hardened the heart of Pharaoh, which made him cruel towards the Egyptians. Crueler. God had the ends in mind. He knew what the end was from the beginning when he gave the command to Moses. I'm going to deliver your people. I'm going to bring them out. You examine that story. There was a lot of things that happened in that process. A lot of means to which God was accomplishing. You remember, he didn't just send them out into the wilderness with nothing. You remember, if you're familiar with the Exodus story we just came out, he plundered the Egyptians. Through the plagues and everything, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, uh, the, the fear of the Egyptians, they actually ended up giving them many goods so that they would not go out into the wilderness with nothing at all. It was Pharaoh's rage and anger that actually drove them to the Red Sea, where in which God gave them the one way of salvation through it, that they would come through on the other side. So that's a, that's a great example of how God is, is using the means of hardening someone's heart to bring about his desired end, that some would be saved. So hardening yourself to the commands of Christ is similar to putting your heart in something like a freezer. It may not happen instantaneously, but it, it's a growing cold over time. Far better it is for us to stay close to the warmth of his love displayed for us in the gospel. It, and now, if we could do this on our own, if we could will ourselves into this, if we could give ourselves the own desire and the work, there would be an opportunity for boasting, an opportunity to say, look at my desires for God. They're more godly than your desires. Look at the work that I'm doing. I'm more godly than you. But look at what Paul says in the very next verse in 13. Who is it that's doing this work? Who gets the boasting? Again, it's God. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The gospel is about God. 
God the Father initiating the plan of redemption, Jesus accomplishing it on the cross and the Spirit regenerating his people to newness in life. And having after, after having done all those things, do you think God would then just leave you to go and work out the rest of it all on your own? No. God's working in us to give us the desires to see these ends accomplished. He didn't just say, I'm saving you for heaven someday. He is transforming us, as, as Zach even brought up on the screen earlier, from one degree of glory to another from 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a gradual process over time. And if you say, well, well God's the one doing the work, I guess. I just... You know, if I, don't, if I don't really feel like it, then I just kind of wait around for God to do his thing or, or maybe I'm not one of God's people because he's not giving me the de- desires I have or anything like that. Again, this is a failure to understand the means of God. It's to say, well, if God is going to save people, why bother praying for someone if God's ultimately sovereign over that, their decision whether to come to Christ or not? Your prayers, in, in that situation, I'm saying, your prayers, that may very well be the means to which God is saving them. You telling someone about the gospel, this is how God works through earthly means. He works through people to see others come and know the love of Christ. And to ignore those things is to ignore his sovereignty over the means and how he's working through his people to accomplish his desired end. If, If this is your attitude towards bearing fruit, what does this say about you? Look at Matthew 17. Jesus says that the fruit is very indicative of the root. It says something about the tree. Is the tree rotten or is it bearing something? Is it bringing something forth? Your callousness towards any kind of transformational change could, could be, that, that would be evident to other people who know you. That may very well be the hardening of your heart that God is revealing that truth that's communicating, that very difficult truth that is communicated in 1 John 2.19, where he says, they went out from us because they were never of us. The power of the gospel, it goes beyond freedom someday when we die. It, it has implications now. And, and I don't want to bring any kind of discouragement. It's a long process. Paul communicates this. He uses this specific word. He says, uh, we are inwardly being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16. I don't know what the average life expectancy is right now in America. Maybe somewhere around 72 to 80. 80 might be a high number. But how many days are in a life of 72 years of living? A gradual process of transformation over that goes day by day over the course of those many years, you, you may be discouraged hearing something about a, a transformational message of the gospel, and you say, I don't feel like I'm, I'm seeing a lot of transformation or change in my life, but this is long. This is something that even C.S. Lewis points to in his book, Mere Christianity, and, and honestly, something that I wish, you know, I said I want to have grace with people who give a mischaracterization of Christianity. I wish that some people would have some grace on Christians. Uh, there, there's a lack of understanding from the world when they say, oh, you're a Christian, you don't seem very Christ-like. It's like, well, who was he before? This is the argument that C.S. Lewis makes. He's like, well, who was he? What, who was the man that was there before he came to Christ? Was he struggling with addiction? Was he lost in pornography? Was he angry and lashing out all the time? What was this man before he came to know Christ? What's been the change? Of course, it's not an instantaneous thing and all of a sudden you become Christ-like. It's a transforming thing that happens over time as you continually conform to the image of Christ, not a one-time event. Jesus even speaks to this in uh, John 17, 17, 17, when he asked of the Father to sanctify his people. That word sanctify in, the, in the, the verbal case that Jesus uses there is not future tense. Some people believe sanctification is a one-time future event, but Jesus doesn't communicate like that. 
we, if you go back and, and if you examine that verse, it's not, even, even as they carried over it into English, it's not in the future tense. It's in something we don't use in English, but it's called the aorist. And it's meant to be an ongoing, continually process that doesn't have a defined end in mind. So when Jesus says, sanctify them, in John 17, 17, we see it's a process. It's something that happens over time. It's nothing for a believer to be discouraged on. If they go from one day to the next and there's a failure and they're like, I did way worse yesterday in my walk with God than I did yesterday. It's slow. It's gradual. For some, for some, it might be drastically different, but it's, it's still a process, not a one-time thing. And we're called not to lose heart when we're given encouragement. Because if you look back in the previous chapter in Philippians, what does God say? In, verse, uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says he will complete the good work that he started in you. God's not just going to leave you. He's going to continually bring you along in conformity to the image of Christ. And, and it's easy to lose heart. We look at verse 14. When Paul gives this stuff, he says, do it without grumbling or disputing. We get frustrated when we take our, our eyes off the gospel, and, and there are moments of grumbling and stuff. And it's not like this should be a shock. When we look at the Exodus story, what happens immediately as they get out? When they're on the other side, what happens so quickly? There's grumbling. There's grumbling about God. They begin complaining and even longing for the slavery that they used to be in. They say, well, at least we had pots full of meat and stuff like this back when we were in Egypt. They were almost longing to go back into chains. It's crazy. We can do the same thing. We, we look back on them and we wonder, like, how stupid are you guys? You see all these miracles and everything that God has done. How can you sit here and grumble? And then we do the same thing. We experience the saving power of Jesus Christ, that, that, that beautiful gospel that has brought us back into relationship with God, and then we go and grumble. We go and dispute. This, this is unfortunate because your grumbling is preaching. You may not see it that way, but your grumbling is preaching. It's communicating something to those around you. In your hobbies, in your work, uh, in sports, with your family, your grumblings communicate dissatisfaction. It communicates uh, something that is contrary to the gospel. Paul goes on in verse 15. He's not, he's not ignorant of your circumstances here on earth when he says don't grumble. He's not saying you shouldn't grumble because everything is, is cupcakes and rainbows. In verse 15, he talks about being in the midst of a twisted generation, a crooked and twisted generation. Life is dark. We're surrounded by darkness. The darkness of your sin and everyone else's sin has you surrounded and somewhat you are in enemy territory. But Paul, and, and Paul's words here in verse 15 can still be applied today. I don't think, I don't think anybody in here would argue and say, oh, we don't really live in a twisted and crooked generation. Uh, things are going great. I don't think anybody's actually saying that. If you are, um, we should have a talk. But uh, yes, it is true. At one point, if, if you read Ephesians 5 eight, at one time, at one time, you were darkness. It says in Ephesians 28. But then it goes on to say, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. There's been a fundamental transformation in the lives of those who have accepted Christ. You're no longer a child of darkness. You are of the light. And this doesn't mean you'll no longer sin. That's why there's that imperative there to walk in the light. You are light in the world now. Walk in it. I, I know not every, there's very few of us actually in this room that have served in the military. I know there's a couple. But when you raise your right hand and you take the oath of enlistment uh, after you've gone through the medical process and everything and you raise your hand and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to serve and fight along and defend my country. Um, nothing, nothing crazy has changed. You're technically a soldier. You're technically a member of the military, but nothing has really changed. You don't have a uniform. You can't march like a soldier. You can't sound off like a soldier. You, you don't, so you don't walk and talk like a soldier, but you are now a soldier. 
And at boot camp, that's when they, the transformational process begins. They begin training you to conform you into the image of soldiers. You, you begin to march and receive instruction. You're inundated to the customs and cultures of that, that new transformational thing. The military really is its own culture. And so you begin to transform into that image. Now, in a somewhat similar fashion, all analogies having their limitations aside, you have made a transition into the family of God. You are now a child of light, and there's an expectation to walk as a child of light. There's an imperative. Conform. Conform to who you are now. You're no longer darkness. You are light. So walk in it. Now you get to walk in it. Walk as one who's conquered sin and death in freedom and in fearlessness. No longer is a slave to the old way of life that led to death. Sin leads to death. In this world and in the one to come, it leads to death and destruction. We have been called to experience that newness of life. We get to, in a sense, partake in the appetizers of that sweet meal of heaven now and get to experience some of the flavor of that life on the other side of glory as we begin to transform into the image of Christ, as we begin to overcome sin here If you're in Christ, then let your light shine and root out darkness. There's no expectation of perfection, but there is an expectation of transformation, and the gospel will transform. It's one of the many facets of the gospel. The gospel is not just simply a heavenly future thing that's going to happen someday. It has real implications for our lives now, transforming us just as much as it will fully one day. So just as, and another thing, just as your grumbling is your preaching, so is your conduct. The, the work is also preaching something out to the world. Like I said, that confusion, you know, when they say, oh, you have to work in order to obtain salvation. Well, it's the same when they bring the other thing where it says you don't seem very Christ-like. That's, that's the duality of that whole issue there. Like I said, I wish they would have more grace with Christians understanding that we, yeah, no, 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 that's why I am a Christian. I'm not perfect. Thank you. You know, like you're right. I'm not Christ-like, but I'm, I'm trying to grow into that image. Thank you. So there is some confusion there. Our desire is not to see the world confused on the fact that we do want to follow Christ. Not as an opportunity, again, to boast in our own self-righteousness, but to make evident that God is working in us. I think, you know, I've been a part of this church for seven years, but I think no one can, can say this more confidently than my wife, who's known me over a decade and a half, that I, there are many things in my life that would be different outside of Christ. I was, you know, I grew up as an atheist, was one for like 22 years. I would have gone down a very different tra- trajectory, not saying that, it, you know, all unbelievers are just absolute degenerates or something like that, but I'm saying I know there are things in my life personally that I would not be fighting against had I not come to Christ. I would have easily given in to those things, just like I was before having known him. And only God knows where that could have led me. There were many things I, I, I was just completely giving myself over to. I didn't even care what kind of you know, debauchery I was giving myself over to. It was only in Christ and through him that I desired to see some kind of transformation in my life. So there will be change. It might be hard to see. Even in the seven years of knowing me, you guys might maybe think, oh, he's like the same guy he was seven years ago. But I, I think someone who knew me in high school and knew the, uh, the punk I was, my wife, She could tell you, I'm I'm not the same man I used to be. And that's what C.S. Lewis gets at at mere Christianity. The natural inclination of the human heart is rebellion. It's self-centeredness. It's selfishness. It's destruction. But conversely, the natural effect of the gospel is transformation. A desire to be holy as he is holy. That command in Leviticus 11.44 where he says, be holy as I am holy. How is this done though? Because it seems like a daunting task. You've been a Christian for a while. This sounds difficult. How is this possible? Look at verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Some of you might be a little surprised 
to know that this word used for the word word, you still with me? In verse 16, that's the word logos. The very same word used of Jesus Christ in John 1.1 to define and declare who he was. That, that logos. How is it possible to do what I'm talking about here, that transformational change? What do you and I need to do in order for Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul to say what he does here in the second half of verse 16? So that he would be proud that he didn't run in vain or labor. How do we do that? At the beginning of that clause, the, the so that, that's, what, that's called a hint clause. What do we need to do in, in order that that would be accomplished? In order that the Apostle Paul would be proud and feel like he didn't run the race or labor in vain. What do we need to do? Well, it's right before that. Holding fast to the word of life. Hold fast to Christ. Many people skip over this on the road to sanctification and spend their lives white-knuckling their way through the journey. Think about your, your biggest Sin right now. The one thing, if you could snap your fingers and it would be gone tomorrow, it would make your life tremendously better. Seriously, think. What's that one thing? Is it anger? Is it an addiction to pornography or some other kind of substance? Is it selfishness? Is it envy of what other people have? What's that one thing that you just wish you could snap your finger? You feel like it's ruining your relationship with God. You feel like it pulls him away from you. If you could just destroy that on a scale of one to 10, how great, you don't have to answer or put up hands, but how great is your desire to see that thing completely removed and pulled out of your life? How great do you desire that to be removed? Think on that for a second. If you've been a Christian for more than two seconds, your answer, like mine, is, is probably a 10, maybe. I can't read your minds, and I want to put you on the spot, but it's probably a 10. Now, let me ask you a similar question, though. Being honest, examining your life, all the things you do, where would you put your desire to know Christ on that same scale? One to 10. Would he be a 10? Do your actions indicate that your desire to know Christ is a 10? If you didn't pick a 10, is it higher than your desire to be free of whatever sin that was? If, if the number in your desire to know Christ is smaller than your desire to be rid of, of whatever sin is causing you consternation, your desire to be free of sin is greater than your desire to know Christ, in other words, you have to ask the question, is Christ just a means to the end of your own self-righteousness? What is greater to you, the perfect version of you or the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ? Where are you looking for satisfaction and joy? Is it your performance? Is it how good of a Christian you are? Is it how well you do in obeying the commands of God? Is it how good you are in your devotional life? This is holding fast to yourself not holding fast to the word of life that Paul commands us to do here in verse 16. If you are the hero of your own story, I guarantee you will let yourself down. This is why Gospel Community Church has that mission from the start to make Jesus the hero. Not our own self-righteousness, not our own efforts, not our own work, but to lift up him for what he has done. Holding fast to anything else other than Christ, it leads to nothing but the way of destruction. You can't worship and idolize your own self-righteousness while hoping to be transformed by the glory of receiving his. We'll end with this in verse 17. Can you set yourself aside as Paul does in verse 17? Look with me. He, he's ready to be poured out as a sacrifice for the death or for the faith of the saints. Poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Is it their works that Paul is ready to be poured out for? Is it their goodness? Is it their righteousness that they're looking, that Paul is ready to be poured out for as a, as a sacrificial offering? No, it's their faith in Christ that they would grow 
in their desire to know Christ. It's, it's their faith, it's that object of faith, Jesus Christ, that Paul is looking to be poured out for. He's not looking to make a bunch of nice people. He's not looking to make a bunch of good people that look nice on the inside. He's looking for a bunch of people that have been transformed by the gospel. Paul is ready to die that you may know Christ and have faith in him. He, he would rejoice in a transformation accomplished in Christ, driven by his righteousness and a people beholden to the glory of God and not their own futile attempts at perfection. As we hold fast to him who is able to save to the uttermost, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and his power to save, not our own, knowing that he's accomplished it all for us so that our boasting would be in him. Let, that, let the gospel be that blueprint for transformation in your own life. The good news of his deliverance and nothing else is the thing that's going to bring lasting change in the life of the believer. Your pursuit and desire to live a life of perfection, it's just self-idolation. It's just looking to be self-righteous. When you get to heaven, whose works are you going to rely upon? Yours or Christ? Hold fast to Christ. Behold his work. Look to him. Look to him and experience change, transformational change. Amen? Let's pray. God, I know it's hard. We are, even the last 10 years, surrounded by a lot of superhero stories in our culture. Even beyond that, we, throughout the centuries, there's been a lot of hero worship. We, we love reading stories about heroes who conquer all different kinds of things, and in many ways, we want to put our place in that position. We want to be the heroes of our own story. It's incredibly difficult to take our eyes off of our own obedience, our own attempts at perfection, and look to Christ and behold him. I pray that our, our desire to know Christ would be greater than our desire to be free of sin, even. That that would transform us. That the gospel would transform us. That Jesus would transform us. Not ourselves, God. We lift up your name. We thank you for doing this work amongst us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.